Uh, we are in our third week of our epiphany series called Incarnation, um, uh, where the word became flesh in Jesus so that the word can become flesh in us. Um, one of the primary questions that the season of epiphany forces us as the church to ask, like this is part of the reason why I love following the lectionary is because we get kind of this, ask this question every year. And one of the questions it asks is, who is Jesus, right? Like, so Christmas, we celebrate Jesus is here, right? And then Epiphany is like, well, all right, he's here. Who is he? Like, what is this guy all about? What is he up to? Um, so one of the answers to that question of who is Jesus is to say Jesus is the Messiah. Um, how many people feel comfortable saying Jesus is the Messiah? Does that feel, yeah. Um, Another way to answer that question, uh, Epiphany asks, who is Jesus? We say Jesus is the Christ. Um, you feel comfortable saying Jesus is the Christ? That's an answer that maybe you're familiar with. Um, how many people know that Christ isn't Jesus' last name? Right? We, we, that? Like, his dad wasn't Joseph Christ. We know this. Good old Joey Christ. His mom, Mary Christ. Must Mary, no. Um, like, that's not... His last name, right? We know that. Um, Christ is a title, or more importantly, a role complete with a job description. Um, it's, it's a specific uh, task, specific role, specific title that Jesus um, not only has applied to him, but applies to himself as well. And so that's the question. If it's not a last name, but it's more of a title or a job description, what does the Christ do, right? What is, what is it that a, a Christ is or a Messiah is? So we're going to connect those two together, Messiah and Christ. What does it mean to say Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the Messiah? Well, if you're anything like me, um, what I did growing up in the church was say, well, obviously Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. So anything that I attribute to Jesus should be attributed to the Messiah and the Christ, Right, so I started not with the dis job description or the title, but started with Jesus and said, well, that's what a Messiah does. So, for example, um, Jesus died on a cross and was raised from the dead, so obviously that's what Messiahs do. Like, Messiahs die and raise from the dead. Um, or a Messiah forgives sins, or a Messiah loves everyone. You, you see, like, I'm taking events from the life of Jesus and descriptors of Jesus and applying it to this title and developing a job description based off of what Jesus did. Um, we call Jesus, Jesus the Christ, or Jesus Christ, so obviously they go together. And if you're, like I said, anything like me, maybe you didn't think a whole lot about what that means or what that connection looks like. Um, but if it's not his last name and it's more of a title and a role, why do we save Christ or Messiah all that often? What is it that, that we expect that to mean when we say it? And so as we look at the gospel uh, story today, we could, we could look at it just as a story about the life of Jesus, and there's a lot to take away just looking at it as a, uh, just a story in isolation, a moment in the life of Jesus. But I'm going to ask that as we read the scripture here in a moment, that you pay careful attention to what the Holy Spirit is doing and careful attention to what Jesus says happens because of the Holy Spirit. Um, so this, this title, Messiah Christ, is intimately linked with the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So as we read it, 
um, look specifically at that connection between what the Spirit is doing and what happens uh, in the world, honestly. So turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read verses 14 through 21. It'll be on the screens. Um, Luke 4, verses 14 through 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, pray with me, if you will. Father, we are grateful for your word. Uh, in the same way that Jesus went to synagogue and shared scripture, uh, read it aloud in a gathered community, uh, some 2,000 years later, we are gathered together reading scripture aloud. Um, that's no small task, no small uh, occasion for that to happen. And so we thank you for the opportunity and the blessings to gather together around your table, around your word. We thank you, especially during this season of Epiphany, where your word becomes flesh so that it may become flesh in us as well, so that the world may know you intimately. There are people that are desperate and in need of you, and for some reason or another, you, you saw it as a wise choice to invite us, to gather us together as your body, and to give us the task and mission of proclaiming that word in our actions and with what we say. Father, we thank you and love you. Amen. So last week, if you were here or caught online, um, we talked about Jesus' very first miracle, where he was at a wedding, they ran out of wine, and he turned the water into wine. Uh, this week's scripture kind of happens right after that. It's still very early on in the ministry of Jesus, very much in the early days. People aren't still real sure about who this Jesus is. He hadn't made it around to all these places, yet this week's scripture is just very early on in the, the ministry of Jesus. And it starts out by saying he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he returned home. He returned home to Nazareth where the stories of his activities are already known. So the word of the wedding may have gotten back, or maybe a healing or something, some of his teachings, whatever. And he's, he's made it back home, and he goes to the synagogue and he reads from the scroll, Isaiah chapter 61. And so what he reads, this Isaiah 61, is what's often referred to as the year of the Lord's favor or the Jubilee year. Now for the, the people of God, time was important. Time was a holy thing. And the way that, that God's people kept track of time um, shaped their lives and their behaviors and their actions. So for example, every seven years, 
because uh, the number seven was important. Every seven years, they would have a feast or a, a, a year of Sabbath, right? They would, they would take time off. They'd let their animals rest from working in the fields. They would let it go without being worked. And that was seven years, and seven is an important number. So seven years, and if you had uh, seven of those groupings of seven years, so you've gone through that process seven times, you end up at 49 years. And the 50th year, as the Bible prescribes, is supposed to be this year of jubilee, this year of the, the Lord's favor, this year where, where according to the scriptures, uh, debts are forgiven, uh, servants are set free from their obligations, slaves are released, um, property is returned to families who may have lost it. It's, it's this great reset that after every 50 years, the world is set back in order. Things can get really messy over 50 years, but after 50 years, this year of Jubilee is supposed to, to release the burden of debt and the, the weight of the world off of people that are suffering under it. It was, it was a time where the land was supposed to return to its original owners and everything was supposed to be reset. 50 years was enough time to mess things up and the year of the Lord's favor was supposed to be this season of fixing it. Of resetting the wrongdoings and ensure that poverty and slavery and sinful behaviors didn't go generation to generation forever. It was supposed to stop it from being generational. Regardless of how hard things got or how far you fell, there would be a moment where grace was granted to you or to your family, and you would be restored to at least a certain level of well being. The only issue with this idea. The only problem with the year of the Jubilee or the year of the Lord's favor is that according to the scholars and the historians and everything, there's no evidence that it ever happened. Now the Bible prescribes it very early on in the history of Israel, about 800 years prior to Jesus. This scripture, or prior, 1500 years prior to Jesus. It's prescribed in the book of Leviticus. It's a very ancient command, but there's no evidence that it ever happened. The people in power had little incentive to surrender their power. The people who had gained by shaping the system a particular way had very little motivation to, to surrender that. Right? It was working in their favor. They had no desire to give up the things that they had gained. And so the hope for a jubilee year, the hope of the year of the Lord's favor grew deep. It became a generational hope. It became a longing that maybe not this time around, but someday somebody's going to carry out this year of the Lord's favor. And so by the time Isaiah 61 was written, it was 800 years from the time this was originally written in Leviticus. So 800 years had passed from the time it was originally written to the time Isaiah wrote it, and then another 700 years between Isaiah and Jesus. There had been people, generations, longing for things to be made right, and yet they never seemed to be made right. It has never happened. And so when Isaiah wrote this 800 years after the original promise, he is connecting with a very deep and a long-running hope. And he, Isaiah writes not one who is experiencing this, this jubilee, but he's writing as one who longs for it, who's hoping for it, who's expecting it to happen. This is something that God is going to do. Isaiah is a prophet who shapes the expectation of God's activity for the people of God. He's one that says, God will do this. So 700 years after Isaiah, 
1,500 years after the original command or promise, Jesus returns to his hometown. He reads the scroll and then finishes by saying, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, by us reading this together, today, this 1,500-year-old promise has been fulfilled. Now, oftentimes in, in church culture, we, we might think of God's redemption or God's salvation as strictly being a spiritual thing. Right? Something that happens in a, in a spiritual realm or a cosmic realm, in an unseen world, unseen forces at work. But from the very beginning of Israel, God was very much concerned about redemption and restoration and freedom being tangible things. From the very beginning of the people of God, he was concerned about his people's well-being in the physical world, here and now. And so Jesus' mission and ministry had a lot to do with the conditions of the people that lived in that day and age. If you read the gospel stories, you'll see that very little of Jesus' teaching is about what happens after you die or something that happens on a spiritual level. I mean, he does talk about that stuff. I'm not trying to negate that, but I'm saying very little of his actual conversation, his actual teaching are along those lines. Most of his teaching was about life in the present. Most of his teaching was how to treat the people right in front of you. Most of his teaching was how to handle questions of power and money and what to do with sin. Jesus speaks a great deal about how to bring justice and mercy and forgiveness and grace into the present world. Like I said, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't care about spiritual things. I'm not saying he, he didn't teach about eternal life or what happens after you die. I'm not, I'm not negating that. So if that's what you hear, that's like you're hearing the wrong thing from me today. It just wasn't the most common thing that he taught about. Through Jesus' own words and actions, we can see that Jesus declared he was the Messiah but he also defined what that Messiah was. He's the one that gave definition to that expectation. He wrote the job description. But before we go any further, anytime I throw around churchy words, especially um, words that you're not going to hear outside of the church, words like Messiah, I want to take a minute just to kind of break it down a little bit. Um, what do we mean when we say Jesus is the Messiah? Well, at the start, I talked about the connection between Messiah and Christ. And really, those are the same words as saying anointed, the anointed one of God. Uh, Messiah comes from the Hebrew word, meaning God's anointed one. And Christ comes from the Greek word, meaning God's anointed one. Right? So Hebrew is Messiah, Greek is Christ. But they all mean God's anointed one. By saying that the Messiah is God's anointed one, though, have I really clarified the question? Oh, great, so now we have the anointed one. What does that mean? What does the anointed one do? What is the significance of anointing? Well, if you've been around the church for a while, you've probably seen um, or heard about anointing with oil, right? We've done that for some people that have come and have health issues or concerns, and they want to be prayed for uh, healing or for protection, and we anoint them. But we don't actually believe that the oil, a little bit of olive oil, creates miracles, right? It's not, that's not the thing that we're putting our hope or our trust in, the oil. So what's this all about? And, and then obviously, if we read the stories about Jesus, he wasn't talking about, oh, somebody put oil on him. 
when he says he's the anointed one. So it's, it's not even quite the same understanding of anointing that maybe we have as a church today. There's got to be something bigger going on with this idea of anointing. Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one. Now throughout the Old Testament, uh, in the Bible, the part before the life of Jesus, we see a connection between anointing, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the mission of God. There's always a connection between these three. The mission of God is connected with the work of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and someone being anointed. For example, when Saul was king of Israel, uh, but not doing a really great job, and things weren't going well, um, the Bible tells us this story about David being anointed. Right? Here's, here's the story. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, anointed David, and in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Right? You see the, see the movement behind the this, this, this Spirit, right? It, it came on David and left Saul. There was an anointing. The Spirit showed up. David was chosen for a mission. Right? The Spirit showed up, anointed him, and now he was to be the next king. And Saul, who was no longer going to be king, the anointing left him. The Spirit left him. I could share uh, many more examples about this. You'll find this pattern all throughout the Old Testament. Um, the book of Judges, you'll see that. Um, there reaches a point in the, uh, kind of the history of Israel where, where the, the kingdom of Israel moves kind of beyond this anointing thing, though. They kind of forget about it, and it's like, we're not worried about who's anointed. We're worried about who's the son of the king, and like the path, the trajectory changes. But there's this very clear pattern in scriptures. Um, and we could look at a bunch of examples, but the point today isn't to give you a history lesson of the Old Testament. Um, but rather to help us understand what Jesus means when he says that he is the Messiah, when he is God's anointed. But to provide at least one more example to this pattern, let's, let's look at the life of Jesus for a moment. Uh, at the beginning of his ministry, right, prior to a certain point, nobody knew who he was. For 30 years, roughly, he was just Jesus, maybe the Jesus the carpenter guy, Jesus, the stone worker, whatever exactly he did for a living. But it's just Jesus. He wasn't out doing miracles. He wasn't doing things that drew attention to himself. It was just Jesus. He wasn't teaching in the synagogues. But the ministry of Jesus starts officially when he gets baptized by John. Right? It's a significant moment. Regardless of what gospel you look at, the baptism of Jesus by John is, is, a, is a moment in the life of Jesus that kind of is the starting point. And what happens when Jesus is baptized by John? Well, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit shows up, right? And appears like a dove. And a dove is always a symbol of peace. So the Holy Spirit shows up looking like the symbol of peace. And appears on him. And then Jesus starts doing his ministry. The Spirit showed up, anointed him, chose him, appeared him, filled him up, and then Jesus goes out and does the work that God had called him to do. 
That happens in Luke chapter 3, and then Luke chapter 4 begins, the chapter that we, our scripture falls in today, Luke chapter 4 begins by saying, Jesus, filled with the Spirit. Now, for me, and, and, and probably for many of us, that phrase just sounds like a good churchy spiritual phrase. Oh, Jesus filled with the Spirit, and we don't think twice about it. We maybe look past it real quick. But for the earliest audience, that phrase, Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit, would be an indicator that God has a plan for this guy. There's a mission that this guy's about to em embark on. God has called him specifically to do certain tasks. He's been anointed with the Holy Spirit for a mission. And so the earliest audience would have heard that Jesus was empowered by God for this grand mission of redemption and salvation. The Spirit shows up, a person is anointed by it, and then that person begins their mission or their ministry. And so Jesus declares his mission here. When he reads Isaiah 61, he says um, that this is his mission as Messiah. It's important to know there were other people before Jesus and after Jesus who were claimed to be Messiah, whether they claimed it for themselves or other people thought they were Messiah. There was other Messiahs beside Jesus. There were some people that showed up claiming to be the Messiah that gathered an army and tried to fight the, the king that currently ruled or tried to fight the military presence that was in Israel. Messiahs who tried to become king of Israel by overthrowing those who ruled Israel. They wanted to lead armies and be kings of worldly kingdoms. But Jesus was the Messiah whose anointing showed up looking like a dove. That's significant. The anointing that came upon Jesus, the spirit that came upon Jesus looked like peace. Jesus was a Messiah who was less interested in conquering physical kingdoms, but more interested in proclaiming good news to the poor, of bringing peace to those who were afflicted, bringing sight to those who were blind, giving prisoners and captives their freedom. This all is defined in, in Jesus' claim that he's Messiah, according to Isaiah 61. Jesus was the Messiah whose mission was to seek the hurting, the suffering, the struggling, and restore them, to heal them, to care for them. He didn't come to reward the religious. He came to seek and to save the lost and forgotten and the sick. So Isaiah 61, Jesus reads this in a synagogue, and it's kind of like his mission statement. This is the kind of Messiah that I am. The ministry of Jesus not only created a path to heaven when we die, but it was created a real possibility that the broken things here and now can be restored and redeemed. Or, as Jesus later taught his followers to pray, that things on earth would be made to be like they are in heaven. This was, again, his mission. To make things here and now how God intended them to be from the beginning. Jesus was anointed for this mission. He was the Messiah. He was the, the chosen one. He was the uh, anointed one, the Christ, because it was God's mission to restore all things, to restore creation to its beauty and glory, to make everything right that had gone wrong. So Jesus declares that God has a mission for him, that God has sent him for a specific purpose, that the Spirit is upon him, empowering him to carry out this mission, that he's, he's going to set people free, he's going to heal people, he's going to challenge those in power that kept people captive. And so Epiphany, the season that we're in in the life of the church, is a season where we ask 
who is this Jesus and what is he doing? And here Jesus answers the question himself. No need to wonder. Here we hear Jesus say about himself, I am God's anointed, sent on this holy mission that is described in Isaiah 61. And this is how his ministry begins. But let's jump for a moment to the end of his earthly ministry. Not the end of the ministry of Jesus, but the end of his physical time on earth as Jesus. This is after he's been crucified, after he's raised from the dead, after the, the women ran and reported that they had seen Jesus or that he was alive. The disciples were hidden away in an upper room or a guest room, right? They, we kind of know the story from Easter time. And then something happened. Something happened after all of that happened. And, and I want you to pay close attention to, to the pattern again of the Holy Spirit showing up, of anointing people, of showing up in a particular way, creating them, calling them to a mission. Ready? This is Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, the disciples, in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. In the same way that the, the spirit appeared like a dove and, and rested on Jesus, tongues of fire appeared and rested on each of the disciples, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Those who had been following Jesus, those who had accepted his invitation and, and called Jesus teacher, are now filled with the Holy Spirit, according to Acts chapter 2. So what does that mean? Does it mean that they're going to heaven when they die? Does it mean that they, God will make them wealthy and healthy and nothing bad's going to happen to them because they have the Holy Spirit? Does it mean they've crossed a finish line of faith, that they've, they've made it as far as God wants them to go? Like, ta-da, we made it. Does it mean that they've been saved and sanctified and there's nothing more to do? They've received the Spirit. Is that the end of things? Or does the Spirit showing up and filling these disciples mean the same thing to them that it meant in the Old Testament all the way through the life of Jesus? Could it possibly mean that they had been chosen, equipped, and called for a mission? Right? Not only did they, they leave that upper room and go preach the gospel all over, but they brought redemption, forgiveness, healing, grace, mercy, justice, and peace to people of all nations. They left that room and went about the mission that Jesus had called them to. And so that's where we land this morning. What does it mean to follow Jesus the Messiah? What does it mean to be a disciple of the Anointed One? It's not just about believing information about Jesus and saying, I, I think that's true. It's about being filled with the same Spirit that filled Jesus so that we can participate in the same mission that Jesus began. And so if you're here today and you're trying to figure out the whole Christian thing, um, you figure out the whole Jesus thing, there's no pressure. I'm not trying to, to get you to sign up to do something that you're not comfortable with or whatever. I'm not trying to push people beyond where you currently are. You know, if you're coming on Sunday or checking us out online, um, you know, you haven't made up your mind about Jesus people or if you want to be one of those people or committing your life to follow Jesus. Like, I'm not trying to give you the sales pitch for that today. 
In fact, we've been praying as a church and working hard, preparing First Church for you to come and ask those questions and for it to be a safe place for you to wonder. You might be checking things out, not ready to take a next step, take your time, ask questions, that's what we're here for. But if you're somebody who already made the decision, you've made the choice, I'm going to follow Jesus. He's my teacher. I'm a disciple of Jesus. The rest of this is for you. Um, <clears throat> I want this truth to, to, to connect with you. This to be what you take away from this, this message today. Um, I think we have a, this on a slide, maybe. Jesus came filled with the Spirit to fulfill the mission of God so that we can be filled with the Spirit and fulfill the mission that God has given us. Do you see the dynamic at work here? Jesus, Jesus came filled with the Spirit and invited us to follow him so that we, like the disciples in Acts 2, can receive that same Spirit and participate in the mission that God has given us as individuals, but also as a church. We are a Nazarene church, which means we put a great deal of emphasis on the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer, in the life of the church. As Nazarene, we believe that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, which literally means makes us saints or makes us holy. Now, I want you to hear this today. Holy doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean without flaw. It doesn't mean that you're never going to make a mistake. Holy means to be set apart, perfectly set apart, set apart for God's purposes. And so a holy church isn't an organization filled with perfect people. A holy church is a church that is set apart and committed to be used by God. Holiness for an individual isn't, oh, I've never broken a, a rule, I've never messed up, I've never made a mistake. That's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about holiness. Being a holy person means being filled with the Spirit so that your life can fulfill the purpose and the mission to which God has called each and every one of us. This is what followers of Jesus do. They are filled with the Spirit so they can fulfill the mission to which we've been called. We let the Spirit work in our lives in order to make a difference in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our places of employment. Disciples of Jesus are people whose lives are lived on purpose, with a mission, that lives are transformed uh, by the Holy Spirit so that they can help others receive that same transformation. How exactly does one get filled with the Spirit? How does this transformation occur? How do we get hooked into this mission, equipped and empowered? How does one be made holy? How do you experience what the Bible calls sanctification? Well, as, as the Church of the Nazarene, as uh, as a uh, pastor in the Church of Nazarene, it's been taught to me over and over again that the first step is to seek it, to desire it, to ask for it earnestly, to seek it in prayer. You commit to surrendering your own will for your own life in order that God's will for your life guide you, that you uh, consciously choose to let go of your own mission and your own goals so that the mission and goals of God can shape your life. Desire holiness. Again, not perfection, it's not a pass-fail test. It's not a, uh, every, everything is not a performance with a whole group of people evaluating you. That's not what the holy, a holy church is about. Holiness is about emptying you 
of yourself so that God can fill it with the Spirit. And the good news is this is what God does. We see this pattern, like I said, in Scripture over and over again. And, and this is something that may take time to occur. Not that God is slow, but that we have a hard time letting go and surrendering our own wills and our own missions. And so God may start the filling work, the sanctifying, the setting apart, the making holy. He might do that in you by addressing some simple things in your life, by pointing to something, saying, just let go of that. Let me control this. Let me steer this. Make the decision based off of what I want, not what you want. But because it might take time, it's all the more important to make that decision today. Begin seeking this work of grace today. Begin making that commitment today. We pray that that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, make things on earth, there in heaven, not my will be done, but your will be done, right? Like we speak the language, but today I'm inviting you to, to pray that earnestly. And not just as individuals, but as a church. This church, first church, has been given a mission. The Spirit has come down from the heavens and has dwelled amongst us, has anointed us for the works that he has appointed to us. So the invitation for us today is to begin seeking, to be filled with the Spirit so you can fulfill the mission that God has called us to. This is what biblical holiness truly is. The question. Receive these words. The Spirit of God is upon you and has anointed you. You are the salt of the earth and you bring light into the world. You are not too young or too old. You are not too rich or too needy to bring good news to the impoverished, to give a hand to the brokenhearted, to live out freedom and pardon through the gifts that you have been given. So remember to pack peace in your toolbox, hope in your briefcase, love in your lunchbox. May integrity, honesty, and joy be your designer wear of choice. Do not be frightened, for you are never alone. The God in whose image you are made will walk with you and guide you today, tomorrow, and every day. Amen and amen.